Our teaching is based from John 13. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around him. Next, he poured the water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel he had tied around him. When he came to Simon Peter, he asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. And Jesus replied, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And down to verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is God's word. Well, we're starting a new uh, series this week, uh, as is our practice um, here at Reality. So we follow a modified version of the church calendar. So this is an example of the church calendar. So the, the year actually begins over there on the left with Advent. So we begin the year in waiting with the church calendar. And we, we go up to Christmas, or sometimes it's called Christmas Tide, where we celebrate that Jesus has come. And then, um, as Mo mentioned, it's Epiphany season, where we talk about who is Jesus. And we move into Lent, where we, we move towards uh, the crucifixion and Easter. And then um, Pentecost, and then uh, where we celebrate that the Holy Spirit has come. And so we do a modified version of this, and then the rest of the time is just called ordinary time, where I just feel like they gave up. They were like, I don't know, that's just ordinary time. Um, the rest of the time. So it's, we, we kind of follow, follow that uh, with our, our preaching here, where we try to, in, in terms of we, we have Advent celebration. At the beginning of the year, we look at uh, one of the Gospels, one of the stories about Jesus, up to Easter. And then uh, this year, after that, we're going to do um, a community hermeneutic discernment on life in the city, specifically around housing. And then into the summer, we, we move into a time where we look at rule of life. And then in the fall, once again, just as we did this year, we'll either choose a passage or a book of the Bible, and we'll talk about that together. So that's, that's kind of how our, uh, our story reflects the church calendar and how we do things around here. Um, and so, like I said, at the beginning of the year, what we do is we spend some time looking at one of the stories about Jesus, about his life. And so there are four uh, biographies, or they're called Gospels, written about the life of Jesus in the Bible. And they all um, are talking about the same person, but they come with slightly different perspectives or slightly different language. And uh, we were in a series in Genesis 2 and 3 uh, last in the fall. And so you may remember Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they're, they're both creation narratives about the world, but they tell it from a slightly different angle. And that's the same thing that the Gospels are doing. They're telling the story from a slightly different angle. So last year we looked at the, the uh, Gospel of Luke, and how Jesus is introduced there as someone who brings jubilee, that he is one who is coming in, in order to enact this ancient practice, this ancient hope that God would come, that he would liberate his people, that he would set the captives free, that he would, uh, he would let go of all the debts, that he would bring people back to the land. This is wonderful Sabbath promise. And so we looked at that. And this year we're in the Gospel of, of John. And we're going to look specifically at one section, which is called the Last Supper. 
or sometimes it's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's the last, or four of the last chapters in the, in the book, chapter 13 to chapter 17. And I'm going to go back to just give a little bit of context about what the Gospel of John is on about, because we're kind of starting in the middle. So um, in, in the Gospel of John, there's no, there's no baby narrative about Jesus. He just is a, he's just a man. He shows up as a man. And he does ministry for three years. And what we see is that he is doing, uh, he's, he's doing all these miracles, or John calls them signs. There are seven signs. And then he's making all these bold statements about himself, all these statements where he says, I am dot, dot, dot. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And, and last time we did the Gospel of John, we actually looked at those two things together, the signs and the sayings of Jesus. But all along, he's also been talking about this, this hour that he's come for. He keeps saying it over and over again. This is my hour. I've come. It's not my hour yet. I've come for this hour of glorification, he calls it, or this hour where I'm going to be lifted up. And I say that because that's how our passage starts today. It starts with these words. Before the Passover festival... Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. And just a few verses later, Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified. And so he's saying this this moment of my hour and this moment of my glorification is just around the corner. And that will be in the Gospel of John that Jesus dies, which, so that's a bit of a spoiler if you didn't know that's what's going to happen. But that's his hour of glorification. That's the hour for which he has come. So that's just around the corner and, and we are now sitting at, at the table with Jesus, just before. That's what this Last Supper talks about. That Jesus gathers his closest friends, his closest disciples with him, and they sit down at a table, and Jesus tells them, this, this is the, these are the most important things. This is who I am. This is what I've come to do. And this is what I want you to remember about me and what I invite you into as well. And so it's, it's a, a really important part of uh, the gospel, and that's why it's called the Last Supper. And by including this, you know, in the, one of the uniquenesses about the Gospel of John is that he includes this, uh, this section is a very long section. It's the largest teaching section in the Gospel of John. And in all of the different Gospels, it's the largest recorded place where Jesus, they talk about this, this dinner with Jesus. And so by including this and making it so detailed, the, the Gospel writers are trying to tell us that there's an invitation not just for those who sat at the table with Jesus, but for everybody who will read this book for the same thing. To sit at the table with Jesus and to learn who he is and what he wants. So, what, who is Jesus and what does he want? Well, this passage, I think, teaches us at least four things. The first is that Jesus is a God of love. So he says this, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So God, Jesus is going to teach us what it means that he loves. What does love look like according to God? And what does it look like that he is a God of love? And we'll see that most clearly when we go to the cross. Jesus is also a God who invites us to the table. That's the whole context for this conversation, is Jesus is sitting down with his friends at the table. And this is not abnormal for Jesus. Listen to what Tim Chester says. Jesus spent his time eating and drinking, a lot of his time. He was a party animal. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. In the ministry of Jesus, meals were enacted grace, community, and mission. So we'll keep reminding you of this again and again. That's what Jesus, that's where Jesus did ministry. That's, that's what he invites us to, ultimately, is a table. The third thing is that Jesus is a God who serves. That's kind of the heart of this passage, that Jesus strips down and washes the disciples' feet. And we'll take a look at that in a moment. And then finally, Jesus is a God who invites us to become like him. He says to the disciples, what I've done for you, I invite you to do as well. 
to love, to open your table, and to serve. So, if you're taking notes, that's kind of like the general outline of the passage, and basically, you know, that could be the sermon, I guess. And there are great sermons about that, and there's lots to explore here. But what I actually want to spend our time looking at this morning is the, the part of this passage that's just been sticking out to me all week. And it's, it's these words here that Peter says in verse 8. He says to Jesus, you will never wash my feet. You'll never wash my feet. It's a very strong reaction from Peter. And it says something about this interaction that he's having, that he has a strong reaction. And it's something that changes his life and all of the disciples' lives as well. That this, this moment, this moment of sitting with Jesus at the table, and it starts with this, this uh, amazing scandal of Jesus washing his feet. It changes their lives. They would end up giving their lives for Jesus and serving the church in the same way that Jesus did. And not only did, was that true for the early disciples, this story is very famous uh, and has moved people throughout history that they would end up giving their lives and serving because of what Jesus did. So here's the question I want to explore this morning. Why doesn't the story elicit such a strong reaction from us, from me? You know, why aren't we, after just reading that, like weeping and crying and like running out the door to go serve someone else? You know, and maybe more broadly, why doesn't Jesus move the dial for us? Why isn't he, what he does and who he is, why, why doesn't he just um, cause these, these, these reactions that we see in the early disciples, that we see in Peter? These strong, strong reactions for us. Well, there's at least two reasons. The first one is just that we have, many of us have a familiarity with the story. You know, like that song that we sang. Many of us might just be very familiar with that song. And we're familiar with this story. So it's not a surprise to us that Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It'd be more surprising if I said to you, hey, look, guys, I spent the whole week researching and it turns out in the Greek that Jesus was actually just paying, playing Candy Crush the whole time. You'd be like, oh, no way, I play Candy Crush. right? That, that would be surprising to you. It might elicit a bit of reaction. But we're fam- familiar with the story, and we all know familiarity breeds contempt, right? Um, but that's one reason. So it's lost a bit of shock value if you've heard this story many times. But here's the second reason that it it's, it's doesn't have the same shock and awe, and it doesn't move us, maybe. is I don't Shock and awe, whatever. It doesn't move us in the same way that it did the early disciples. It's because we live in a very unique moment in history, a unique cultural moment that is very, very different that, from the time of the Bible. And so I want to talk about that, and I'm going to explain it by introducing you to someone. His name is Geert Hofstad. Geert Hofstad. Um, I know that some people here are pregnant and expecting a child, and so you may be looking for baby names. Can I recommend Geert to you uh, as a, you know what that, I actually looked this up, the name means brave with a sword, dude. (laughs) Send that kid to Vancouver school with like Snowflake and Arbutus and Dreamer, that kid's going to dominate. Okay, Um, so he's a Dutch social psychologist, okay, uh, and um, I'm not sure if he's still alive, actually, but, but the point is, here, here's what he liked to study. He recognized that different cultures um, had different management styles, specifically, and if you took the different management styles to different places, they often didn't work. So he, he, he would ask these kind of questions. Why do successful managers in China look very different than successful managers in America, Or why, if you take the best management practices from Iraq and you try to do them in Denmark, they totally don't work. You'll totally fail. So that's what he was interested in. So he started working with IBM in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, They were a big multinational corporation. And so he sent out this huge survey to all their different sites to just understand what they thought about management. And he came up with something called the Hofstad's Cultural Dimensions. 
He didn't call them Geertz, unfortunately, cultural dimensions. Hofstad's cultural dimensions. And uh, it's six scales on which cultures differ. Um, and they're not right or wrong. That's very important to know. But they can cause a lot of conflict because they're different. And, and if we make assumptions about what, what, work, what works in one place, it might not necessarily work in another place. So here's the first five. I'm just going to give them to you. They're not actually important to the sermon, but to stop you from Googling them while I talk. Here's what they are. So individualism versus collectivism. Are we more individualistic or are we more group-oriented? The second is called, it used to be called masculine and feminine. They've changed the name, but I couldn't find a graphic that had the name. But it's basically, are you more decisive, uh, very like quick decisive, or are you more consensus-based? And you can just, I'm not going to get canceled. You can guess what, which gender it was which. Um, ambiguity, are you comfortable with a- a- ambiguity or do you need certainty? Certain cultures are different. Are you long-term or short-term oriented? And then finally, are you, are you geared toward indulgence or restraint? And this is fascinating. You can go online, actually, and you can Google, uh, go to his website. I think it's like Hofstad's Insights. And you can check any different country, and they've got all the different countries. And some of you who are in cross-cultural marriages, this might be a fascinating afternoon for you. Um, but here's the final. The final one is what I want to talk about, because it's of interest to us today. It's called power distance. High versus low power distance. So here's a definition. Power distance is the way that people in a society relate to each other on a hierarchical scale. A culture that gives great deference to a person of authority is a high power distance culture. And a culture that values the equal treatment of everyone is a low power distance culture. In high power distance cultures, inequality is seen as the basis for societal order. In low power distance cultures, on the other hand, We see inequality as sometimes necessary, but the more that relationships can be equalized, the better it is for everyone. So here's some examples of of some high and low power distance cultures. So uh, you can see these are all the different cultures. On the the top, we've got the four, China, Denmark, Ireland, and Nigeria. I just chose because... Uh, at random, kind of. But you can see all the the different ways that they they, um, uh, score. But power distance is the far left. And so China and Nigeria are two of the highest power distance cultures. And Denmark and Ireland are some of the lowest. So there's a a big, if you were doing, um, if Hofstad was checking for his management training, he would tell them, you need to work differently in different cultures. Now, based on this graph and this talk about power distance, what do you think Vancouver is? High or low power distance? Well, let me just imagine I said this. I think that inequality is the basis for a strong church order. What would you say? You would say, I will find a new church. Thank you. (laughs) We're absolutely a low power distance culture here. Like our mayor's name is Ken Sim. You may not even know that because you're like, who cares? Uh, Low power distance, right? But we think of his job as serving us. So if you went to Oppenheimer Park tomorrow and you saw him you know, flipping hamburgers and handing them out to people who are houseless, you'd be like, yeah, that's his job. His job is to serve it. It's no, there's no shock to that. So we live in a very low power distance culture. And this is not just you, this is me. All of us are like this. Like, I don't know if, if you know this, but I, I w- also fall in that category. I, I really don't like the term pastor. So if you call me Pastor John, I might call you like, oh, thanks, parishioner Alex. Um, it's just like we try to keep that power distance as low as possible, and I'm so, I'm, this is the water we all swim in, okay? So here's the big problem, and here's what we're getting at today. So we're in a low power distance culture, if you want to go to this. But the Bible 
in general, and specifically in the Gospel of John, it's written into the exact opposite. It's a high power distance culture. Those with power, Jesus says in another place, they lord it over other people. That's what they do. They use power to keep power. So you can think of us as a very flat culture. There's not a lot of distance. Whereas there, it's like a, a giant triangle. People with power, it's, it's the basis of societal order. In, in fact, actually, uh, in one, the other Gospels, this, this meal that they're at, the, the setting for it, the disciples are actually jockeying for power. They think Jesus, his hour of glory is going to be that he's going to take over. He's going to crush the Romans. And he's going to sit on the throne in Israel. And they're asking, hey, where am I going to be on that hierarchy? And we look at them in that moment like we're, they're like their characters in succession. We're like, dude, what's wrong with you guys? But that is just normal for them. That's just the, the world that they swim in. That's just good practice. And it's good practice for many other places in the world. It's the basis of societal order. And in high power distance cultures, then, displays of this power become really important. They're not just social acts or performances. They actually show where you are on the hierarchical scale. And in the ancient Near East, you needed to get your feet washed. It was dirty and it was dusty. People wore sandals. It was gross work. And so who washed your feet was a very important display of this power dynamic. Listen to what uh, commentary Gary Burge, or commentator Gary Burge says. He says, The task of foot washing was so menial that according to some Jewish sources, Jewish slaves were exempt, and they kept this job for Gentile slaves. One story reports how Rabbi Ishmael returned home and his wife tried to wash his feet, and he refused, claiming that it is too demeaning. At the very least, all our ancient sources show that foot washing was a degrading task, degrading and lowly task. Since it was an act with social implications, in, sorry, in no way do we find these with, those with a higher status washing the feet of people beneath them. So I tried to make some slides for this, but then I realized they sucked. So this morning we're pivoting to the whiteboard. So I'm going to try this out. Okay, so in the ancient Near East... Okay, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, basically they're a high power distance culture. And so what you have is, you know, you've got a rabbi here, a rabbi, and then you've got the disciple, and then you've got a slave. And so there's, there's distance between each of these people. And uh, this is an important display of societal power. You've got people probably above the rabbi in this society, but you don't really have a lot of people below. Maybe I should have put a slave a little bit lower on this drawing. But uh, this is kind of the, the, the makeup of it. So for a rabbi to, for a disciple to wash a rabbi's feet, it, it maintained the societal order. It was very abnormal, like that person talked about in, in that, in that uh, culture, for a man to have his wife, his wife would be below him in the societal order. Um, which is not what I'm saying should be, just was. Don't, once again, please don't cancel me. Um, but for the wife to wash his feet, it could happen. But it, as we saw in this, uh, in this um, quote here, it was very abnormal. And people would often say, I don't want that to happen. It was a very rare display of devotion, actually. And same thing with a disciple. A disciple could wash a rabbi's feet. It was very rare. But it kept the social order. But what happens when a rabbi then goes all the way around and becomes a slave, and washes the feet of his disciple. It's completely messing with the societal order. And, and the reaction then would be great. For this reaction, for this, this to change, for the disciple to become like a slave and wash the rabbi's feet, yeah, that would cause a reaction. But for the rabbi to wash the slave's feet, absolutely crazy. It's huge. As it says here, 
we'd never find people with a higher status becoming lower to wash the feet of those beneath them. Now, the power distance between um, humans was great, but the gospel says something unique about Jesus, that he's not just a rabbi, but he's actually God, which then puts him in a completely different stratosphere. Like, he's not here, but he's like, we, we'd need like two more whiteboards to talk about where God is. He's way, way up at the top. He's not slightly better than a rabbi. He's all the way here. And so the power distance between God and humans and like a slave is absolutely huge. It's absolutely huge. Maybe the best example comes from Isaiah 6. Um, There's this guy named Isaiah. He's a prophet. So his job is to speak for God. That's what he does. And one day he has this vision of God. And he um, actually doesn't really see God he sees this this huge throne, and it says it's high and lifted up. It's way up. If you remember back to our worldview in ancient uh, Near East from Genesis 2 and 3, the heavens are above. And so God is seated there in this temple, in this high and lifted up throne. And you can't actually see him. He doesn't get to see any parts of his body. The temple, it says, is filled with smoke, and it's just everything is shaking. It's this picture in their mind of, of glory and honor and holiness. And all he really gets to see from God is the hem of his robe. And he says the hem of the robe is so big that it fills the temple. This is the vision that Isaiah has of God. And his response is very important to us. Isaiah says, woe is me. One of the Bible translations says, it's doomsday, it's over, I'm ruined. And then he says this, my eyes have seen the king. And we want to be like, well, technically you just saw his robe, you know, you didn't really see him. My eyes have seen the king, and I am a man of unclean lips. Which is very important. That is his job. He is the best in all of Israel at speaking for God. And he says, actually, my best is broken. It's unclean. And I come from a people of unclean lips. He is, what Isaiah is trying to do is he's trying to drag himself down. Because he's at the, he's at the limit of words. He doesn't know what to say. When he comes face to face with God... He's saying, I'm absolutely the, you know, I'm the best in Israel. I'm up here, but I just have to drag myself down because the the distance between me and between God is, is massive. It's huge. I can't even describe it. And so for the God man, for, for the people in the ancient Near East and that are first reading this story to, to hear this story that Jesus is God and he would come and he wouldn't cover himself up, but he would strip down. He would take his clothes off, and and he would kneel. This God would become basically naked and kneel down and take the position of the lowliest servant, probably a female Gentile servant, the worst servant in the house, the one with the lowest amount of power, and not touch the lips of people, but touch the feet, the dirtiest part of of a human in that culture. And get down and wash the grime and the dirt and the feces off of the feet of normal people. And not just normal people, but one of those people would be someone who would betray him, which is the lowliest thing you could do is betray someone at dinner in that culture. This is utterly shocking to them. Absolutely shocking. Because God, this power distance exists between, between God and humans, I'll just put an H here, and God is going all the way down, condescending all the way down here, completely shifting the power structures. And so this becomes a a massive and awe-shaking thing for people, what God is doing in this culture. Now imagine that you lived and you have all this tape rolling in your mind, 
when you hear this story, or if you're sitting at that table with God, how are you going to experience this? Well, this would absolutely change your life if that's what God did. And that's what happens to the disciples. Their lives are changed forever. They will face, they all die following Jesus, serving people. And that's what they say is, is very important for us, that they say that when they face times of suffering, when they t- face times where they're called to serve beyond what they normally would, they, they call it an honor. Because they look at their king, they look at their rabbi and how he served them, and then they look at their, their God and how he served them. And they say, yeah, so some, sometimes I'm called as a follower of Jesus to go a little bit below my status. It's an honor. If this is what God did for me, then I'd be willing to do it for him. It's not a problem at all. So here's the big challenge for us. We live in a very, very different world. So if this is us over here, we just live in a very, very different society. We're basically like, you know, God, teachers, students, maybe students are above teachers, I don't know. Then we have a lot of educators here, you could probably tell me. And then like, you know, there's someone who is something like a slave, what would that even mean in our culture, really? Like, you, you could just do, like, a pig pen here, right? Like, we're all just kind of in this somewhere in here. There's a very low power distance culture. And ironically, this, this, uh, this type of culture exists because we live in a Christian-influenced culture, which is not all a good thing. I'm not saying that. But the reason that we have this in our culture is because people have heeded Jesus' words that leaders should serve. It's very unique, actually, in the history of the world. So we have no problem then in this kind of a culture with a God who would come and wash our feet. Whereas Peter says, you know, you'll never wash my feet, Jesus. If Jesus came here and started washing our feet today, you'd be like, hey, can you like get in there? Really get in there. You know, the girl who does my petties, she just, she uses a file and she just gets in there. If you don't mind doing that, that would be really great for me. Because we have no power distance between us, between leaders, and between God. And herein lies the huge challenge for us in a low power distance culture. We read what Jesus has done. But because he's only like slightly higher than us, we're not very moved. We kind of feel like Jesus, about Jesus, how we might feel about our moms. Where you're like, yeah, he loves us, that's his job. He serves us, that's his job. She makes me lunch, that's her job. Why do I need to be thankful for that? And here's the point. If this is our worldview, like in this, in this worldview, for, for a rabbi to do this would cause awe. For God to do this, if you understand that and you're living in that kind of a world, you know what it would cause? It would cause this much worship. Sorry, this is getting terrible. But it would cause this much worship. Do you understand? What happens in our culture if, if God does that for us? Yeah. Maybe like... That's what we feel because we live in, in a low power distance culture. We're not moved in the same way. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and so there's a lack... Of, and here's really where it comes down to us, for us today. What we experience is a lack of awe. At what Jesus has done, a lack of reverence, a lack of worship, a lack of resonance, a, a shortage of passion in this kind of a culture when we hear about what Jesus has done. I don't know if that's reading anyone's mail. And it, and it comes to moments, when it comes to these moments where Jesus will ask us to do things, like what he's asking in this passage, to serve like he served, to love like he loved, we're only going to be willing to do this much. 
Whereas what we see the disciples is they're like, oh yeah, I'll, whatever. I'm, I'll do it with joy because I'm joining. This is what God has done for me. We're like, yeah, I'll give you that much. Anything more, you're asking a lot of me, God. You want me to give up my like, fitness class after? Come on, that's a lot. Because it's a low power distance culture. And so here's the question. What do we do about this? Well, the first thing is that I think it's just have to recognize that this is our world. This is the world that we live in. It's not your fault that you live in this world, and it's not our fault. These are forces that are way beyond us. And there's really good and bad things about living in a low-power distance culture. That's one of the things Hofstad says. This culture is not better, and this culture is worse. That's not the way that it works. There's just pros and cons. So we just live in this type of culture, and we can't really change it. But I also think that we can't just allow ourselves to run on the default settings of our culture. At least if what we want is what the Bible offers, which is this life-changing relationship with God. A God who's not just a cosmic butler, but he is the glorious God of, of the universe. So we have to figure something out in order to get God there if we actually want to experience worship, if we want to, to have this God enter our lives and for it to, to change us somehow that we might actually be salt and light to the city and to this world. Something has to change. Something has to happen. So how do we do that? Well, this passage gives us a clue about how to do it. Listen to, again to what Jesus says. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Jesus says, what should you do? You should serve. Verse 34, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. These are the commands of Jesus. To show love in the way that God has loved us. So Jesus is commanding us in this passage that one of the ways that we show if he is God, if he is Lord and teacher, is that we actually push ourselves down a little bit. That we serve one another and that we love one another. That's one of the ways that we make some distance here in order to worship God. Now, a few notes about this. First of all, I know that one of the reasons beyond just us being typical Vancouverites, that we are slow to give power and authority to anyone, including God, is because we're afraid that, that any kind of power distance will, will result in abuse. And, of course, that is very sadly true. I don't need to tell you the stats or bring up any examples of that. We all know that people in spiritual or leadership and other kinds of leadership have used their platform and their power for personal gain, for money, for abuse. And so part of the fear that we have is that if we give anyone authority in our life, including God, that they'll hurt us. And that's very natural for us to think as, as like modern Western Vancouver's, Vancouverites. And so if that's you, I hear you. And I want to recognize that that colors everything about our relationships with God and with each other. It totally makes sense that it does. But all I can really say to you is this. I'm so sorry if that's happened to you. And I just beg you to look at Jesus beg you to look at him in this passage. The heart of this story is a God who doesn't, has astronomical amount of power and doesn't use it to abuse anyone, but rather becomes the lowest and serves. And so I just invite you to just stare at that story of a God who would bend down, a rabbi who would bend down on his knees and wash his disciples' feet, and a God who would give himself in service to other people, to humans like you and me. And just continue to stare at that story. That maybe he, maybe there's lots of other people who don't deserve that position of power in your life. But maybe he does. 
Maybe, maybe above everyone else, he might be the only one who can take that position, who deserves it, and might actually have the power to then serve and to call us into new human beings. So I recognize that that's our story, and I recognize that some of us are dealing with that, but I just beg you to look at Jesus, maybe to take some time to, to reflect on this story. Secondly, I know that some of us are burnt out and or recovering from burnout. So I get that to call you to serve, to call you to love, is just calling you to do extra and is not the most helpful thing for you to do now. And so if that's you, I'm glad you're here. Um, and, uh, you know, don't feel any pressure from me. Maybe we talk about rule of life a lot here. Maybe put it in your rule of life for this season. That what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually live in the rest of Jesus. I'm not going to step into serving in new areas or anything like that. But I'm, just going to, I'm going to, as a spiritual discipline... I'm going to rest. I'm going to Sabbath. I'm going to experience the jubilee of being free from any of that right now. And we'd be honored to be part of that process. Share that with your community. But I also want to say that the way that we talk about rule of life here is that it's a seasonal thing. So there are seasons for us to rest, and then there are seasons for us to do what Jesus is calling us to do, which is to obey and to serve. And some of us aren't serving, and we're saying that we're burnt out, and it's been a very long time. It's just because you're so busy with everything else. And so you're, you're out there grinding all over the place. Sorry, that sounded terrible when I said it that way. <laughs> we'll cut that one out on the recording. But you're out there and you're, you're, you know, you're working hard at your job. You're, you're running your kids all over the place, doing whatever. And then this just becomes the place where you don't serve. The place where you only receive rest. And I, just, I, I know that that's some of our story. So I want to challenge, challenge us. Asking yourself, are, are you truly burnt out from serving? And, and some of you probably are. That's totally fine and okay. But some of us are just saying that. You know, when we had kids, um, when uh, they were really young, one of the best parts about having kids that people don't tell you about is that they become an excuse for everything you don't want to do. So you could just be like, all oh, the kids. Like, yeah, we totally would do that with you, but the kids, you know, we can't, uh, can't stay up that late. But at one point, we were uh, just chatting in the living room, and we realized... Actually, we, we could do some of these things. They've just become an excuse. We're just using them now as an excuse all the time just for things we don't want to do, which is one of the joys of having children. But that's, but that, that's a lot like, I think, what some of us are experiencing burnout. Maybe there's a season where you had to say no. Maybe that season is over, and you're just using it as an excuse now. And so we invite you back into that. And, and look, I'm kind of going hard in the paint here on this one, but it's, it's not because I need you to serve it's because I don't want to blunt the words of Jesus. I want to hear what, if, if, if I, I, it's because I want this. I want this for me. I want this for us. Is this kind of worship, this kind of awe, this kind of reverence, this kind of hope, and this kind of light shining out from us. That's why. To hear these words of Jesus and this call of him to obey, to serve, to love. And here's, here's the real reason why. When we do this, when we allow ourselves just to go a little lower than our station, when we allow ourselves just to drop down, when you, when you wash feet, okay, which is like don't actually wash feet. That's kind of a weird thing to do, okay? But whatever we figure out is the, the equivalent of that in our culture and in our space and in your lives. When you're willing to do that, when you love like Jesus loved, it will suck. And it's not going to, like, Will Smith movie suck, you know, where, like, the first 45 minutes are tough and then your daughter wins Wimbledon. Like, that's, you know, that's how we like to think of life sucking. No, it will just probably suck for a while. It won't be fun. Because serving in the way that Jesus is serving here is just quiet, demeaning work. And you might feel like nobody notices. And you might find yourself saying, 
you know, I shouldn't have to do this. I have a master's degree. I run a company. Like, I shouldn't have to do this. You know, I clean up at home already. Why should I clean up here? Or why should I give money, more money to these people? Why should I serve? I already pay my taxes. And it's just in these exact moments when we feel these things that we would never probably say to anybody else, that we open ourselves up, actually, to be ministered to by Jesus. Because he felt probably some of the exact same things. Isn't there a slave around to do this? Shouldn't someone else have to do this for these folks? And it's in these moments when we've pulled ourselves down a bit that in obedience to God, when we've decided to go below our station and serve people that, let's face it, don't really deserve it and probably won't be that thankful to you, it's right in these places that we can start to experience and understand the story of Jesus. Is what he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly since that's what I am. I am teacher and Lord. And I came as your teacher and Lord to wash feet. That our, that's what our God did, is he came and he serves. He knows exactly what it's like to pull yourself down. And he started off at a slightly higher station than you or I did. And he came and he served. And so when we put ourselves in that place of service, we might start not just to know these things about Jesus, but to actually experience them. That's what Jesus is doing. He's giving us experiential training. That's what he's doing with the disciples. He's showing them. He's not just telling them. He's showing them. And when we serve, we put ourselves in the same place to receive from Jesus. That he's right there beside us, serving along with us. And he came from a slightly higher place than we did. And then our relationship with him might go from baby worship to a little bit higher in those moments of service. And just like the disciples, we're not just invited to one level of reflection, but we're invited to a second level of reflection. You know, theologians, they break up the Gospel of John into four sections. So there's the prologue and the epilogue, or like the beginning and the end. And then there's, they say, two books. The first book is called the Book of Signs. Uh, It goes from chapter 1 to chapter 12, and there are stories that bookend that. That's why they think it. And the second book is called the Book of Glory. And this is the very beginning of it, this story that we read today, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And the story that ends this book of glory, these stories are supposed to match together, is Jesus dying. And what they're saying to us is that this story of Jesus serving his feet, it tees us up to see that next story of Jesus dying, where he will truly, in this story of of serving, he shows who God is, and he reveals his glory, but he will do it even more so at the end of the book. This ultimate moment of glory and service where King Jesus who's described in the Gospel of John as the Word, as the one who existed before all time began, that the world was created for him, through him, the one who deserves all glory, the one who is life himself, that this King Jesus will come and he will give up his life to love and to serve you and I and to set us free. And it's right there in this, this moment in the story that the story of washing, Jesus washing the disciples' feet goes from some weird story 3,000 years ago to something that could come right into our living rooms. It's a story of a God who is described in 1 Timothy this way, as the blessed only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see. To him, he deserves all honor and eternal power. Their author is just using all of his words as he can to say, get him up. He's so high up there. 
that this king comes and gives his life for us, goes to the very, very, very bottom and liberates us from the ways that the chaos monster has controlled our lives and controlled each one of us. And in his death, he shows us the love of God, but in his resurrection, he gives us hope that there is a new kind of life that we can live, that God's spirit actually wants to come and live within us. We're not just freed from the chaos monster, but we're invited to become new human beings. People, when we, are, when we do a little bit of this, who might actually experience something like the awe and worship that the early hearers of this story heard, and we might become people who actually learn to serve like our rabbi and love wholeheartedly like we see our king doing. That's the great hope that we have. And there's one more piece to it, too. Jesus says this, If you do these things, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the great hope, that if we allow ourselves to do this, in a low partisans culture, if we pull ourselves down just a little bit, that we might create space to experience worship and awe and reverence for God, but also that other people will see. And they will see that there is a God out there worth following, someone who can show us what love truly is. This is the great invitation for us as we start this series. The invitation to pull ourselves down in order that we might see this Jesus and what he's done for us and enter into that story, becoming new humans that witness to our city. Let's pray to close. God, uh, we thank you for this story. And um, uh, again, as I think about it, I, I want to experience it in a similar way to the early um, disciples sitting at that table. So I pray that as we sing, as we give, as we take communion together, that you would put um, a sense of awe in us. As we think about these words and think about where we can serve, maybe we're serving here, maybe we're serving somewhere else. Um, Would you help us to pull ourselves down to obey you? Not just so that we uh, obey, but so that we might actually meet you in that space. And we might create some space to lift you up that we would see you as the God who truly does come and give himself for us. So as we enter this time, we give it to you and we ask that you would make yourself exalted as we just sang. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.